This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news. We begin with breaking news, of course. This is an ABC News special report. And we have a decision just breaking from the Supreme Court. On the U.S. Supreme Court. Hey, we're coming on the air with breaking news. The Supreme Court has just rejected a challenge. Good to the morning. Court. We're coming on the air with breaking news from the Supreme Court at this hour. Hello and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. And today we are back with episode six of our Supreme Court season. Last couple weeks, we've been talking about the nomination process, the confirmation process. And today we are at the point where the judges are on the court and they're doing their work. Well, somewhat. Supposedly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And, you know, we're talking about accountability we're talking about qualifications of what makes a good justice right important things that the media should help us understand at every moment of the life cycle of a judge when they're being nominated confirmed joining the court for the first term and working and then leaving the court you know all of these are moments where we should be holding justices accountable and talking about What makes a good justice? Because we need to know whether they're good or they're bad at what they're doing. Exactly. So we're talking about accountability. I don't know if these lifetime appointments are doing what we expect them to do. Exactly right. So, Brendan, how do we even know what the job is supposed to be? Yeah, well, I feel like this is a good segue episode from our discussion of confirming a justice because... One conversation that I don't think is talked about enough in that process is what the basic professional qualifications are of a Supreme Court justice. And as I said earlier, it's helpful to understand what makes a good justice so we can hold them accountable, not only to make sure they're not violating ethics, but that they're assuming they have any established, but yeah, (laughs) but, but that they're just doing a good job. Right. And So what is the basic professional qualifications for a justice? Well, first of all, it's worth noting that there have been justices who never served as trial judges. In fact, most of the justices today never sat as a judge in what we would typically think of as a trial. There have been justices who never served as judges at all. For example, Elena Kagan never served as a judge ever. She was not a judge until she was on the Supreme Court. So if she was a capital J judge. Yes, exactly. And there have been justices who never even went to law school. Not recently. Not recently, (laughs) but there have been in our history. You know, most of the history. It's not a requirement for the job. Exactly right. The Constitution is perfectly fine with all of this. But today, there's definitely an informal idea of what the qualifications are. We want someone generally... When we, let's say, let's just assume, okay, how about this? We are an administration, right? We are the, let's say, Biden administration. Breyer is retiring, and we need to get a new Supreme Court justice in there. So what are the qualifications? Well, 
Someone who went to law school, right? We got to check that box. Someone who ideally previously served as a judge. That's helpful because we can understand what their previous rulings were. And it'd be great if they were on the federal bench because that would mean that they have already been confirmed by the Senate in some way or another. And that's helpful, right? They've been through the Judiciary Committee. Okay, that's number two. Number three, someone who has clerked for another justice, boy, they get extra points there, particularly for having clerked for the justice that they're replacing. For example, John Roberts clerked for William Rehnquist, who he replaced as Chief Justice, and Katanji Brown-Jackson clerked for Stephen Breyer, who she replaced as a justice, right? And then generally, now we don't agree this is the right idea, but they're always looking for someone who went to Harvard or Yale Law Schools. It's very clear that that is an important thing for people to serve on the Supreme Court right now. It's pretty messed up. In fact, a lot of these things are messed up, but (laughs) that's the informal qualifications checklist that people are going through these days. And if you're a conservative, generally you want someone who is a prominent member of the Federalist Society and someone who is Catholic so that they make the rulings you want related to abortion. And if you're liberal, you want someone whose position on abortion is clear and who served a past Democratic elected official or administration, so it's pretty obvious what side of the aisle they're on. And then, of course, you don't want someone who's 75 years old because they're not going to serve on the court for a long time. Generally, you want someone who's at or below the age of 55. So that's like six basic check marks. But the crazy thing is, when you start thinking about it, how few people actually check all of these boxes. The surprising thing is that not many actually do. And this should really concern us because a lot of these things, as we mentioned, Naomi, are extremely superficial. For example, let's look at that clerked for a Supreme Court justice. Okay, that that check mark. Each Supreme Court justice only has four clerks a year. And so there are nine justices. So for any given appointment of a justice around the age of 55, that means there was a maximum of about 15 years from which a lawyer of that general age cohort could have been a clerk. With 36 clerks at the Supreme Court every year, that's a maximum pool of 540 people. Now, not all those clerks went to two law schools, Harvard and Yale. In fact, when you look at the numbers of clerks who went to those schools, only half did. And I say only jokingly because it's bullshit that that half of them went to just two law schools. But anyway, that gets you down to 270 clerks who could be Supreme Court justices on this list. And let's assume that only half of them are the preferred party of the president doing the appointment. Now you're down to a pool of just 135 people. But not all clerks go on to be judges. In fact, very few actually do. According to a detailed accounting of all 125 law clerks that served Stephen Breyer, that Reuters did, only two of the 125 went on to serve on the federal bench, with another serving as U.S. Solicitor General. So let's say generously that five of Breyer's clerks went on to have relevant experience that could set them up for a future appointment to the Supreme Court. That's 6%. That means that in reality, for each Supreme Court vacancy, there's a maximum of eight people who could even possibly check all of these boxes. Eight people on Earth. This is really stupid. These check boxes are stupid. But this is what our Supreme Court is looking like, people who check these boxes. Think about that. Again, a maximum of eight people who could even possibly check all the boxes in a country of 300 million people. Eight people doesn't give you enough leeway to find someone who actually is good at their job. 
and might be good at the job of being a Supreme Court justice. In fact, forget about good. How about excellent? Doesn't a lifetime appointment demand nothing short of excellence? And yet, if your pool of candidates is limited to eight people, you've got a real problem. And these check marks assume that the current characteristics of the judges are the only ideal characteristics that we want, right? It doesn't assume that we are actively seeking other types of experience or qualifications or anything like that, right? It's like, we just want more of the same because it's perfect. Yeah, it's absolutely absurd. So when we talk about accountability, we often talk about the justices themselves, but I think it's also worth talking about the accountability of the administrations who are appointing these justices in terms of why they're choosing these qualifications over other qualifications, right? I would really like the media to be more explicit about this informal list of qualifications because this feels pretty spot on right now in terms of the pool of people that they're looking at for Supreme Court justices. And yet, as we talked about, there's there's a lot of problems with these this like list of checkboxes, right? Wh- how do you feel about that? Well, one, we need to first look at and have a conversation and have some basic understanding of who is making these lists, right? So are they yes. administration officials? Are they people... Uh, a la Mitch McConnell and his judiciary minions? Are they the Federalist Society? Because they all have different rankings within this list, right? Yes. And so... Like some checkboxes are more important for those exactly, people exactly. than others. And so I think it's important to have an understanding who who exactly we're talking about and how they are organizing that criteria to then understand whether or not we agree with that criteria. Yeah, Naomi, it seems like a lot of the media in reporting these sorts of shortlist, shortlists of candidates focuses on the candidates, right? Rather than on how these candidates were chosen, why they were chosen, and asking critical questions about whether this is the right way to choose justices, right? Right. The assumption once it's looking at the candidate themselves it assumes that the selection process is fair yes and assumes that they're looking for the right things yes and as we mentioned i think in the nomination episode there was like very bare bones coverage of the other potential nominees other than kataji brown jackson i'm thinking when leandra kruger and Michelle Childs were potential nominees. Like they had really fascinating experience and we didn't have the opportunity to understand like how that would fit and why we might want to value it. And we had Senator Lindsey Graham and Representative Jim Clyburn who both really wanted Senator Childs who is from South Carolina as well, were really touting educational diversity. And It was just like, ah, there's those South Carolina guys really want their South Carolina judge as opposed to like, hey, these very different men who value very different things both want this judge. Like, let's understand this like potential value of educational diversity like that. That's just interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, when I reflect on this conversation about basic professional qualifications, it does just feel like 
the basic job qualifications list that you find in any job listing where it's like, we want someone with a minimum of a master's degree in this area or this area and a minimum of 10 years of experience at such and such industry and proficiency with this you know level of software or experience with working with teams of this size or budgets of this you know that sort of thing and when you actually look at that that sort of job qualifications list you're like does this really relate to whether someone's going to be good at the job or not? There are plenty of possibilities for people who don't check those boxes to actually be excellent at the job. Absolutely. And there's something to be said about, you know, hiring and vetting efficiently, but let's not lose whole swaths of candidates just because we don't even want to reconsider how we approach our selection process. So yeah, I think this is a great transition to what you're going to be talking about, Naomi, which is not the check marks of where these judges come from, but the actual work that gets done on the court itself, what that job is. Yeah, so thinking about accountability of these justices while they're on the court had me thinking of like, okay, what are some like basic parts of their job, <laughs> right? Like job performance, like what are, what are some of the things that they're doing? And it had me thinking around two specific parts. Because it can be difficult to really understand the rationale or the motivation for some of the media coverage of the actual work that is done by the Supreme Court judges. We've mentioned in previous episodes, there's not as much coverage about the questions that are asked or who is asking questions during oral arguments. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time there around oral arguments. Clarence Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas, at one point went 10 years without asking a question during oral arguments. You can't go 10 seconds <laughs> without asking questions. That is also true. If I'm awake, I'm asking questions. <laughs> You know, of course, asking questions is not a requirement of being a judge. <laughs> There's very, very, very little that is actually a requirement. But at some point, it just got accepted that he was a judge that wasn't going to be asking questions. <laughs> and I'd be curious to know, like, if most Americans knew that during that 10-year period. Right. Right? I don't think so. I, I do not think so as well. I mean, if you're a lawyer, yes. If you follow Supreme Court cases, if you're in a firm that has advocates that go to the court, you probably know. But do most Americans? I doubt it. A justice not asking questions at oral arguments is like a president not giving speeches. It's that weird. Like, it's just odd. It's, yeah, it's not even like not doing interviews, which like Biden and other people and other presidents have gotten slack for, right, for not being accessible to the press. It's like not even doing, <laughs> not even like performing publicly in the one, in the one space venue you that you have. Yeah. And yet it didn't, people didn't know about it, right? And you would know if someone was like, hey, you know what's weird? Biden hasn't given a speech in 10 months, right? Even if he went 10 months, people would be like, he must have lost his voice. He's going to die. <laughs> right. And, you know, I'd be curious too if Americans thought that meant Clarence Thomas was truly fully doing his job, right? Like if they would associate those two things together. Now, COVID actually changed a lot of the format around oral arguments and specifically changed the format of asking questions. So instead of interjecting, which is the norm now, justices took turns asking questions. Again, oral arguments were virtual for a good while. And in this structure, Justice Thomas asked way more questions 
which is actually like truly so interesting. Yes. And so this examination of the right way or the ideal way or the expected way to participate should, you know, I I consider them all similar facets of the same conversation, accountability and scrutiny of how these lifelong justices are doing their job. Now, people who are supporters of Clarence Thomas might send us an email and say, you know, when Clarence Thomas first started doing this work, he's been on the court, I think now like 30 years ish. But in the beginning, they used to hear a lot more cases and there were a lot fewer questions that were asked. Yeah, like twice as many cases. Twice as many cases. And so he became a judge when it was not normal to interject as much as they do now. And, you know, he's given statements saying, like, as a Southerner, as an introvert, like, I just I want to really listen and everything I need, almost everything I need, I can probably get from the briefs. Uh, I don't learn by back and forth a lot. Uh, The the there are a lot of people I'm willing to bet you in this audience that would consider themselves introvert. When you are introverted, that is not the way you learn. Okay. And the, the I kind of like the quiet learning. I like the court the way it was when I came on board. Fewer questions, uh, more opportunity for the lawyers to talk, more opportunity for people to have a conversation with the lawyers. So it isn't so much that mm-hmm. I think my colleagues are asking too many questions. I think the risk that you run when we are this active is that you are beginning to monopolize the time that, or freeze out the time that the lawyers should have to make their arguments. So there's that whole piece, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I want to acknowledge it because there are different ways to do your job, right? But again, the justices are never talking and engaging with the press. So it's like this one way in which we see judges, quote unquote, perform at their job. Yes. He's often like, quite the outlier or was before covid correct now he's asking way more questions correct but that is very interesting that it's kind of similar to a business meeting some people are just quiet and won't speak up unless it's like okay let's stop let's go around the room person by person let's hear your thoughts or if exactly. you have exactly different format different facilitation exactly And then beyond questions, another huge part of their job is actually writing opinions themselves. You know, so like many Americans, like many progressives, I was completely gutted and devastated by the Dobbs decision. And I read and consumed a lot of news content this summer about it. And yes, there was a lot of articles about the draft leak that came out prior to the actual decision you know, the logistical and emotional impact of abortion services in the country. There was even some analysis about how Justice Thomas went further than Justice Alito did, in his opinion, and like the potential applicability of his jurisprudence that he was recommending. But I was extremely frustrated to see how much of Alito, Justice Alito's opinion used bad, incorrect or deceptive reasoning to justify this decision. Specifically, Justice Alito directly quoted findings from the Mississippi legislature because it was the Mississippi legislature that brought this decision to the Supreme Court. And they're just like flat out wrong and they're not supported by medical professionals or medical science. And the severity of this deception stood out to me when I listened to specifically a podcast episode called What the Health. I think I've talked about it on the show. It's excellent. It's a show produced by Kaiser Health News with just healthcare journalists. And in their Dobbs episode, you hear like some really clear 
surprising examples of how far this language goes. Listen to this exchange from Sarah Varney and also Julie Robner, both with KHN. One of the things that I really noticed was how much Alito relied on the findings of the Mississippi legislature in making his decisions. Many of those findings were just factually incorrect. So, you know, the Mississippi legislature had found that at five to six weeks gestational age, a, quote, unborn human being's heart begins beating. That's just incorrect. At five to six weeks, it's not a heart. These are electrical impulses. You would not hear anything if you put a stethoscope up to a pregnant woman who had a five to six week old pregnancy. Um, you know, he goes on to talk about at nine weeks, all the basic physiological functions are present. At 10 weeks, vital organs begin to function. You know, these things are just incorrect. But he really chose to essentially take the Mississippi State Legislature as the sort of medical experts in fetal development and, you know, really used their language, you know, talked about how the use of surgical instruments to crush and tear the unborn child. I mean, this is just not at all how the medical field universally thinks about abortion, um, which is, of course, supported not just here in the United States, but by medical associations around the world. And of course, I pointed out that Alito, who wrote the majority decision, also wrote the majority decision in Hobby Lobby, where he also made sort of unsubstantiated medical claims about how contraception works. So this isn't the first time we've seen Alito adopt what he deems scientific language that actually isn't. And how this sort of conversation was not headline news is beyond me. It's in, it's unacceptable. It's totally unacceptable. I knew that anti-choice advocates use very specific language to describe abortion, to describe a fetus, to describe how they feel about it. That is just not supported by medical professionals. But I truly like did not realize that like <laughs> same language could be in a Supreme Court opinion. And not just the same language, just factually false statements yeah, that were used as the foundation for a decision. If you were in high school and quoted a Supreme Court opinion, you would think that that's like right. Yeah, yeah. And then it's just not the case. But there, there are no fact checkers at the Supreme Court, right? No. There's nobody organizationally. There's no organizational function within the entire Correct. Supreme Court building itself. Even though they have their own library, there's no one who goes through and says, uh, hey, look here, I looked over this draft and it's not, this isn't true, right? They rely on the other justices to do that. And if they, the other justices don't bring it up, then, then it doesn't Or they can change. keep it anyway. Right. Or, and they, certainly they can keep it anyway. Right. Absolutely they can. Because that's what happened here. And this isn't the only misconception from Justice Alito that we, you know, that's described here. In a New York Times article by Linda Shu, Shu notes several instances where Justice Alito paints a picture of abortion access that is just not correct. The New York Times also had an annotated version of the Dobbs decision, and it had it side by side with kind of explanations where things were actually incorrect by fact checkers. And I also found a couple stories similar that were also on Slate, too. But in general, this was not like major news. Right. It That's was the like, part that was like really disheartening to yeah, me. Yeah, it was for people who wanted to dig in and understand the line by line, this and that, you know. Oh, let's post the PDF of, of Biden's State of the Union and people can go through and see whether they want the and fact it, and like or the, whatever. And the annotated 
decision like didn't read like an article it was like the decision and then you know side by side language and so it's like you really had to like want to read it unacceptable coverage yeah unacceptable yeah the fact that most news organizations jump to the impact of this the decision that like there wasn't enough space or capacity or staff to deal with like the straight up lies and what I find most frustrating is that because this draft was leaked, which is very strange and very atypical, they even had more time to like look into this yes. egregious language by Justice Alito. And that's what drives me absolutely crazy about political coverage in this country, which is there's this idea, and we've, we've heard it from Chuck Todd I think from his own mouth talking to us, right? Which is, it's more powerful if someone other than the journalist in his mind, like fact checks, right? And, but no, that's your job, right? Like you have to do that. You have to call it out. You can't give space to things that are not true. Right, we can't. And you have to hold people accountable and not assume that the other side is going to do the job for you. Right, and that then people will listen to it, right? Right. Exactly. And you know, and like, I, as the intro of my segment makes clear, like I'm clearly pro-choice and anyone who's listened to Polylog like knows that. But I hope all of our listeners are pro-facts and a justice that needs lies to convince people or defend his jurisprudence for overturning abortion access. Well, I hope that like makes you a little uncomfortable. Like we should not be accepting straight up lies right in our general political discourse right and and that's where it's like there are there is room for disagreement there is room for interpretation of the constitution there is room for different styles of interpretation there is room for which facts you think are relevant but there is not room for basing your opinion on things that are simply not true to do so to do so should raise the specter of accountability and methods for accountability, which there are very few, but there is one, for example, impeachment, right? Justices can be impeached. And one possible reason for impeaching a justice might be that they're not doing their job right. We don't even have objectively. A conver- <laughs> right. And objectively. if we're never having the conversation of like, what is that job? Yes. Then like, then the, the, the recourses are never possible. Exactly right. Or even if impeachment seems beyond the pale. <gasps> Consequences, no. Never. <laughs> How about a strongly worded statement? <laughs> even if that's the case, we should still talk about it because it will inform our conversations the next time it comes time to nominate someone to the Supreme Court. And we might think, hmm, I wonder if the person who we're nominating has a history of distorting facts and shaping things to their own ideological whims. Maybe that person should not be a justice. We've already got that justice on the court. We don't need another one. Let's, let's try to check some other boxes here. And I guess the only thing I would add is like accountability is good for everyone. <laughs> yes. Accountability is not like a progressive thing, a conservative thing. Like people who don't like accountability are doing something shady. <laughs> yes. And we should be 
wanting our government institutions, including the Supreme Court, to have an environment where accountability is possible, is welcomed, and that there then builds trust in that institution. Like all these conversations around does America have trust in the Supreme Court? Like makes me so frustrated because all of it assumes is like people will eventually forgive and forget the disappointment of the Supreme Court decisions if they're hurt, you know, feel like they haven't been the right ones. But you could do the work to be better. (laughs) And that would actually improve it too. Yeah, in Stephen Breyer's book, Making Democracy Work, he has a passage where he talks about this And he says that justices have a duty to write clearly to the public, not just to lawyers. And he says, quote, when a judge writes an opinion, even in a highly visible, politically controversial case with public feeling running high, the opinion's reasoning, not simply the author's conclusion, can make all the difference. A strong opinion is principled, reasoned, transparent, and informative, and a strong opinion should prove persuasive, make a lasting impression on the minds of those who read it, and, if a dissent, eventually influence the law to move in the direction it proposes. That's what we should be talking about here, right? Not just that this decision has a powerful effect because it changes the law and the world that we live in, but whether it's a strong opinion. Is it backed up by facts? Is it something that any you know someone could like you say Naomi like turn in as a paper and say this is real this is true this is right right and, and that was not a strong opinion and there are examples from history where opinions were not only like wrong politically and not only wrong in terms of their misinterpretation of the Constitution but were just like terribly badly written for example. Stephen Breyer earlier in the book talks about the Dred Scott decision of 1857, which was is widely considered the worst opinion ever by the Supreme Court, reinforcing slavery right before the Civil War, saying that Congress didn't have the power to stop the new territories from having slavery in them, even though the Constitution expressly gives Congress that power. But not only that, not only was the decision in its interpretation of the Constitution just blatantly wrong, it was offensively written. The opinion was offensive in the way it was written. And Breyer underscores how a joint committee of the New York legislature shortly after the opinion was handed down said that the decision, quote, destroyed the confidence of the people in the court. The statement said, that Justice Taney's opinion that people of African descent had no rights was, quote, inhuman, unchristian, atrocious, disgraceful to the judge who uttered it and to the tribunal which sanctioned it. Lincoln himself talked frequently about the opinion and based much of his famous Cooper Union speech on the dissent that had been written by Justice Curtis. And later, as president, literally in his first inaugural address, Lincoln called into question the Supreme Court's legitimacy. Now, one could say that was a powerful opinion because it powerfully changed the country, but it wasn't a strong opinion because it wasn't on strong foundations. Certainly, we're not saying here that the mainstream media should take sides on political issues, on every political decision, but 
the media can legitimately say whether a decision is a strong opinion or not a strong opinion. And that gets to how it is written, how it is reasoned. What it's leaning on. Right, what it's, exactly. What it's building upon. Exactly right. Those are all legitimate things for the mainstream media to take a part in these opinions. So, Brendan, I just spent quite a bit of time looking at some of the work product or deliverables that we would expect from a Supreme Court justice, but that's not all that they do. There's a lot of other work that they do. Help us understand holding them accountable to some of that work. Yeah, well, and this, again, I think should help color our understanding of what makes a good justice, right? We should always be thinking about that when we think about their job as being beyond what we see publicly, right? What we see publicly is is just the tip of the iceberg, right? We see them during oral arguments, and then we also see what they write in their opinions and their statements. But how are they working with their colleagues? How are they putting these actual opinions together and exerting their power? Well, as we've talked about, the Supreme Court is very secretive, but that doesn't mean that stories don't make it out of the Supreme Court. And sometimes these stories are older stories, but they can at least help us understand how power operates on the court. And that's what we need to understand when we're thinking about what makes a good justice. What types of skills do they need to be effective at their jobs? And so I want to provide a few examples of how justices just go about working. This goes back a little ways. It goes back to the time that Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong was, were writing The Brethren, talking about the court that preceded Rehnquist's court as Chief Justice, the court of Warren E. Berger. And so I just pulled out three short examples of how three different justices of that time went about working and exerting power. So first of all, let's take a look at the Chief Justice at that time, Warren E. Berger. Here is a short paragraph or two describing the way he worked on the court, okay? This is from the Brethren. Part of the problem was that the chief spread himself too thin. He accepted too many social speaking and ceremonial engagements and exhibited too little affection for the monastic, scholarly side of the court's life. As a result, Berger was often unprepared for orals or conference. Too often, he had to wait and listen in order to figure out which issues were crucial to the outcome. His grasp of the cases came from the summaries, usually a page or less, of the cert memos his clerks prepared. The chief rarely read the briefs or the record before oral argument. The problem was compounded by Berger's willingness to change his position in conference or his unwillingness to commit himself before he had figured out which side had a majority. Then, joining the majority, he could control the assignment. Berger had strained his relationship with everyone at the table to the breaking point. It was as offensive to Blackman as it was to the others. But one had to understand the chief. For all his faults, here was a self-made man who had come up the ladder rung by rung. Blackman did not begrudge him his attempts at leadership. So doesn't that, like, 150 words tell you so much it gives you a sense of their like style and ethic, like works work ethics, right? And and how different they can be as well, right? I mean, here's the chief justice 
First of all, how much do we talk about social speaking and ceremonial engagements of the court and how that can be a drain on their ability to to do the work of the court itself? Not to mention that they sometimes get paid or sponsored for very nice trips to do those. Yes. But that's a whole other piece. Ethical accountability, right? But also, here's someone who's not doing a lot of the book work ahead of time, right? And then this is a, a thing that comes up again and again in the book, The Brethren, which is Berger, as Chief Justice, remember, the Chief Justice, whenever he or she is in the majority, they have the power to assign who writes the opinion. And if they wanted to, they could just assign every opinion to themselves, which on a lot of major cases, the chief just assigned himself to write the opinion because he had that power. Now, when the justice is, the chief is not in the majority, then he doesn't get to assign who writes the opinion. It goes to the senior most justice, the justice who's been on the court the longest within the, the majority who gets to choose who writes the opinion. And so Berger often waited to see where the majority was so he could be in the majority and then exert his influence and decide, oh, I want this written by the liberal justice or I want this written by me or I want this written by this, you know, conservative justice to shape how the opinion is ultimately handed down, right? He would drive people crazy on that. In one instance, for example, in the book, he found himself on five, he, cha- he voted five times. He voted twice against the plaintiff. He voted twice for the plaintiff and then when everything went to like the other side he voted again against it it was insane it was insane but that's what he did and he drove people crazy to exert his power right it's also worth noting that this idea of like exerting power on the court one doesn't have to be chief justice to exert power on the court as we said the senior justice, the justice who's been there the longest on any given case, gets to assign the case if the chief is in the majority. So every justice, unless they were appointed when they're like 70 years old, potentially has the chance to be the senior most justice at some point in their tenure on the court. And so we should be talking about how fair they are. You know, famously, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that William Rehnquist, although he was extremely conservative, was, quote unquote, the best boss she ever had because he was so fair in how he handed out his assignments. And you don't even have to be a chief or the longest serving justice to exert power. For example, Justice Hugo Black would routinely insist that an opinion not be released until he had finished writing his dissent. And this was a traditional courtesy in the court, right? Correct. You'd expect to see an opinion and the dissent come out at the same time. But as a result, it bought him time to lobby other justices to come to his side. Right. So that's another way to exert power. All right. Here's another example of a justice, like a little profile in their way of working. This is a description of Justice Harry Blackman. And Blackman, famously in this example, is working on Roe v. Wade. He was the author of that opinion. Here's the excerpt. Wearing a gray or blue cardigan sweater, Blackman hid away in the recesses of the justice's library, and his office had instructions not to disturb him there. The phone did not ring there, and not even the chief violated his solitude. Working at a long mahogany table lined on the opposite edge with a double row of books, Blackman took meticulous notes. He spent most of his time sorting facts and fitting them to the law in a desperate attempt to discover inevitable conclusions. He tried to reduce his risks by mastering every detail, 
as if the case were some huge math problem. Blackman felt that if all the steps were taken, there could be only one answer. These abortion cases were his greatest challenge since he came to the court. Beyond the normal desire to produce an opinion that would win the respect of his peers in the legal community, Blackman also wanted an opinion that the medical community would accept, one that would free physicians to exercise their professional judgment. And Blackman, I should note, before he was on the court, was the chief counsel at the Mayo Clinic. Oh, right. I remember you talking about that. Yes. So he, he, he had worked with doctors on medical issues for years before joining the court, which was one of the reasons why he was chosen to be the writer of the Roe v. Wade decision, the author. So look at this. This is a totally different vision of what a justice could be on the court, right? Here's Blackman, the studious one, in the library. But that doesn't mean he was necessarily super effective. This initial draft opinion, by the way, that he produced in Roe v. Wade was not hailed by his colleagues. Some were confused why he seemed to focus so much energy, for example, on empowering doctors rather than the woman who is carrying the fetus. But it was a landmark decision, and he treated it with the respect it deserved. And ultimately, he was very proud of it, even though he received nonstop death threats afterwards, including from members of his own church. Just goes to show the audience that you're writing for really matters because, like, people will look at it forever. Right. Blackman couldn't understand why people didn't realize he wasn't the only one who wrote that opinion. Like, there were other people's names on the opinion. All right. Here's another example. This is Justice Lewis Powell. Here's the excerpt. And this is Powell working on an opinion he's writing on death penalty cases. He felt that he was in many ways ill-prepared. He had practiced corporate law for nearly four decades and had never aspired to be a judge. His experience was in arguing cases, not deciding them. He directed a clerk's attention to the 403 volumes of the court's published opinions that lined the wall of his office. Bill Douglas, now, he knows what is in those books, Powell said. I don't. Powell had confidence in his legal skills, but he was not comfortable or familiar with all this material. He had always operated from solid ground, had always been as well prepared as anyone. In legal circles, he had earned a reputation for excellence. Now, for the first time in his life, Powell faced the possibility that he might not do a good job. Fear became an unarticulated motivation. There was only one way to catch up. He intensified his already grueling work schedule, resolving to read every court opinion ever written on the death penalty. To make more time, he even gave up going to church on Sunday. Accustomed to having law partners to consult with, dozens of junior associates to do research, and numerous secretaries to do the typing, Powell was surprised that a justice in the highest court in the nation had a staff of only five. So here's another example of someone on the court, right? I mean, we've gone, you know, from, from one end of the spectrum to the other, from a judge who doesn't even read the, right. the opinions before oral arguments to a judge who decides to read every previous death penalty case in the history of the court. And this just goes to show, like, how important the book The Brethren is because we have these anecdotes of these justices from back then. Yeah. I think it stops, what, in, like, 76 Right? 76 or 78, yeah. Yeah, 76 or 78. Like, 
it's so hard to get that kind of insight of our current judges or even modern judges. Yeah. And how they do their work. And how they do their work. Yes. There was one, I, I, I can't remember exactly which justice it was. I think it was Powell, but it talked about how he actually worked. Like he would work all day at work and then he would come home and he would like work for an hour or two and then he'd go to bed around 10 and then at about two or 3 a.m. in the morning, he would wake up. I think it was like 2 a.m. in the morning. He would wake up and he would work for two more hours and then he would go back to sleep at like four and then wake up again at six or seven. And he found that that like two hours in the middle of the night was like his most productive time. Well, Justice Ginsburg was like that. She was such a na- night owl. Oh, yeah. Like 1 a.m. was an early night. She often worked three, four in the morning. See, so we have some information here or there. But this this getting these little little bits, these little anecdotes gives you a sense of like who these people are, how they do their work. And also how they might assert their power, right? Or recognize their own limitations and where their experience might be helpful or might be harmful. You know, Powell, who had four decades as a corporate lawyer and didn't know how to make decisions and expected to have a lot more help than they have on the court. Absolutely. Just, (laughs) which goes, which is a whole other piece of like, how are they as a boss? We haven't even gotten to that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that came to mind here as we're talking about this is if we had a press that was determined to get information like this, the conversation about the court would not only be more interesting for people to follow, it could also raise more meaningful issues for the court itself, right? Like, why is it that ever since the 1970s, justices on the court were complaining about not having big enough staffs to do their work well? right? Like, here's a justice from the 70s saying, five people isn't going to cut it. What are you doing here? When I was at a corporate law firm, I had so much more help that would prepare me to do my job. That type of conversation is relevant, not only to make sure that our justices feel prepared, but that they're doing good work for all of us, because the justices work for all of us. That's who they work for. They work for the people. They are, they are paid for by our taxes. And so if they need something to do their job better, that should be a, a topic of conversation. It should be a topic of debate in our media. You know, we talk about when school teachers have to buy their own supplies. We should also talk about justices who have to type their own opinions up, right? That should bother us. I mean, oftentimes the clerks are writing their first drafts and then the justices are editing them and working on it collaboratively. But right, right. I get you see what point. I'm saying, yes. right? You get what I'm saying. Okay, I want to talk about another thing, which is the strategies that justices use as they're working on their opinions itself, okay? And I'm not going to read this excerpt. I'll just describe it, right? So at that time, there was a justice, Justice Bill Brennan, and Justice Brennan was on the liberal side of the court, and the court was considering sex discrimination cases. And during their conference, the conference where all the justices get together and and talk about where they stand, pretty much all the justices seemed to be in agreement that the example they had before them, which was a case from the Air Force, was an example of sex discrimination. Chief Justice Berger assigned Brennan to write the case. 
because Brennan felt passionately about these issues, and everyone seemed to be in agreement that this particular case should be overturned, right? This ruling should be overturned. Brennan, however, began to think that sex discrimination cases were very similar to race discrimination cases, and that the case should be written more widely. It should be a more meaningful case. They shouldn't just decide this case. They should decide that the Constitution bans sex discrimination. But Brennan knew that everyone hadn't decided on that, right? That that wasn't the agreement among all the justices to write something so big and so meaningful. And so what Brennan did was he circulated a draft opinion to all the other justices, which is something they do, right? They write their drafts, they send it to the other justices, and the opinion was writing on very limited grounds, right? Just throwing out this this case in, in limited grounds. But he also sent around an alternative section that proposed a broader constitutional ban on sex discrimination, basically saying that sex discrimination is not allowed in the Constitution. But think about the, the political know-how that you had to have as a justice to do that, right? To say, oh, you know, writing the opinion is not just what I want. It's what these other justices have agreed to. And yet I still want to put my case out there, so I'm going to do it as like a smaller alternative section for you all to take a look at, right? And ultimately, the other justices didn't sign on to that alternative opinion because they felt that the Equal Rights Amendment, which was moving through, which had already passed actually Congress and was moving through the states at the time, kind of took care of it. And the court didn't need to get ahead of that issue. Ultimately, it never got passed, but people at that time thought it would. Right. Um, and so they felt like there was no need to step out on this topic at that time. But what a great example of working with your colleagues across the aisle, you know, across the whole spectrum of things, but also trying to exert your own influence on the case. Well, and this is interesting because like exerting your influence and the negotiations and, and kind of all of that piece are all we act like they don't happen (laughs) right right Right? like we act like if we don't talk about it it didn't happen and they just all have like these judicial minds that just come together in agreement or don't and then they write about it or i I don't know there's like i think this goes back to i can't remember what episode but like the reverence of the court right to not go into the minutiae of their work style their collaboration their disagreements like understanding the work itself and how they do it and how that changes from court to court i think is actually also a a whole other piece of this which again like we don't do with other parts of the government like how many times do we like have breaking news over some you know filibuster threat or right random like insider procedural thing that congress is doing with people who are potentially voted out of office after two years yeah (laughs) but we're not willing to do that or have that same type of curiosity and scrutiny yes for a lifetime body it's it's unacceptable it's just kind of mind-boggling it is it truly is and i want to make a point that like yeah, this this book is without peer in the area of like digging up these stories. But that's not to say that even in this time, we don't have a sense of these sorts of relationships and how justices operate and that we can't be having these conversations. And so we were talking about in the last example, 
the idea of working with colleagues, and that is important if it gets you somewhere, but a justice might have to be flexible as the court's composition changes. For example, look at former Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? Here's how Linda Greenhouse described RBG's evolving strategy in her book, Justice on the Brink. To build bridges or to burn them? That choice faced the members of the court's liberal bloc over the years as their numbers shrank. Ginsburg had seen herself as a bridge builder for most of her judicial career, beginning with her warm relations with the conservatives on the D.C. circuit. She changed when the court changed, with Sandra Day O'Connor's retirement and replacement by Samuel Alito in 2006. No longer able to influence outcomes with her vote, Ginsburg began to raise her voice in dissent. Approaching her 80s, she became the notorious RBG. Sotomayor's trajectory was very different. The court she joined in 2009 was already deeply conservative on the issues she cared most about. She saw little prospect of making a difference inside the conference. It wasn't a question of whether to burn bridges. She had no bridges. If she wanted to make a difference, it would have to be outside the court, using her position as leverage and her American dream life story as her currency. Yeah, I would just make a slight edit that the RBG reputation did not come solely from her descents, but a whole yes, outside like appreciation of her advocacy and work. Yes, I totally agree. <laughs> totally agree with that. Yes. But but it's interesting thinking about like your trajectory. And it kind of goes a little bit to what we were saying about Clarence Thomas, right? Your work style might be defined or influenced by the court you started with or how it evolved. Yeah. And that's why I and I think I've said this before, I hated those articles about Katanji Brown Jackson saying, oh, well, her appointment doesn't change the composition of the court. So it's not that important, right? She's a liberal replacing a liberal. But it her appointment does matter because it might not change the composition today, but in 10 years, she could be the deciding middle vote, right? You, we right. have no idea how the court is going to evolve over her 25, 30, 35 years on the court. No idea. And so those types of articles assume that the timeline of our conversations is like the timeline of a Congress, right? And that's not how it works. The court changes and can change very rapidly. Ultimately, with all this, I keep coming back to this question that I think the media should be helping us understand. And it's a question that William Rehnquist underscored in his book called The Supreme Court. He put it this way. How is a disinterested observer to know when the court is working within the bounds of the Constitution and when it is going beyond those bounds to impose on the country its own views in the guise of constitutional doctrine? How is such an observer to know, on the other hand, when the court is properly deferring to legislative and executive judgment and when it is supinely refusing to uphold quite valid claims of individual right. Ultimately, the media should help us understand, in a disinterested way, as a disinterested observer, whether the court is doing its job well or doing its job poorly, and whether individual justices are doing so. And it's not doing that right now. It's saying, oh, well, the conservatives had a win, or the liberals had a win. Well, and that's also really interesting to think about, Brendan, in terms of like the evolution and work of an individual versus the body, like the Supreme Court as a unit, 
right? Because oftentimes we talk about like the work that the Supreme Court has done and we're like, oh, okay, well, you know, it was a 6-3 decision and the conservatives are doing this or conservatives are doing that. Right. But like if you want to understand like how a specific judge is evolving or what they're focusing on or whatever, you kind of really have to go to much more niche coverage, mm-hmm. specifically law journals, law op-eds and legal podcasts to get that in any remote sense. I mean, that's been my experience in preparing for this show. I have a better understanding of who's how each judge works, but it wasn't really accessible to me just through general like national news coverage. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like this is this is a huge problem. But as I articulated that it occurred to me that mainstream media treats Congress and the presidency the same way, right? It's thought of as common knowledge that Congress has not dealt with a lot of issues that it needs to deal with. But common knowledge, that's not acceptable. There needs to be accountability for Congress not doing its job, right? There needs to be accountability for the presidency and the president not doing his or her job, right? There needs to be accountability for this. And we need to think about our coverage in those terms. When Congress doesn't deal with immigration, then we need to start asking why haven't they dealt with immigration? Who is to blame? Who are the players? What's behind that? And hold those people accountable. Hold Congress accountable. Ask what each individual congressperson is doing to make the stalemate possible because that's Congress not doing its job. That's what we need to do. We need to get our coverage to align with the idea that the media's role is accountability, accountability to these institutions doing what they are supposed to be doing. And we know what they're supposed to be doing because it's in the Constitution. <laughs> like, And it's like demanded by the people, right? We know what polling says, what people say are priorities, and they don't get done. Accountability isn't just throwing out who happens to be majority leader. It's about looking deeply about the, at the institution and what the priorities are that each individual in the institution is putting forward. Now, all of this, it's a high bar, right? It's a high bar for the media to reach, and it's a big conclusion. But at the very least, the media can tell us whether a justice, an individual justice, just one person on a court of just nine people is good at working with others, whether the justice is committed to putting in the time that the work demands, whether they're putting out good work product when they actually write something, and whether they're willing to change their strategy when necessary to stay relevant. Like, for example, uh, a good example is, as we were just saying, Justice Thomas did change his strategy, right, to stay relevant in the time of COVID. So check that box, right? But we also should know whether a justice is just being a dick, okay? I want to finish with this fun example, all right? Here's an example of the latter. So this is from the Brethren, of course. So I'm just going to read this, all right? Near the end of the term, the court heard a case involving a patent dispute over a water flush system designed to remove cow manure from the floor of dairy barns. Referred to around the court as the cow shit case, it was of no significance not even posing interesting questions in the arcane field of patent law. The conference, that is, the meeting of all the justices, was unanimous that there was no patent violation. 
the case would ordinarily go to the most junior justice, who at that time was Justice Stevens. Instead, Chief Justice Berger assigned the cow shit case to Brennan. Brennan was insulted. He was the most senior justice at that time. But he refused to pass along the humiliation to his clerks. He did all the work on the five-page opinion himself. Later, when an insignificant court of claims case was argued, Brennan decided to vote whichever way would leave him in the minority. Quote, so that bastard can't give me cases like this. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Anyone can be petty. Moral of the story. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is my favorite kind of lesson. So we should be aware of these levers of power and how justices can wield them for their own gain or against their colleagues. We should be aware that a justice can be susceptible of twisting the Constitution to meet their ideology, but also capable of using their power to be petty pieces of, well, cow shit. This should be part of the media narrative, because we can't know if someone's a good justice if we don't know what a good or bad or shitty justice is. I rest my case. I guess to close this episode, I would say we're not expecting all of these things to happen in next week's Sunday, New York Times, Washington Post, whatever. But like, can we see a little bit, a little bit accountability for these people who have a job forever? Like, is that, can a girl dream a little bit (laughs) of accountability? Like, they're raising the bar like five inches would already be progress because it is the bar is just so low in terms of understanding what these people do understanding why if and why they deserve to be there and whether or not we think they're doing a good job exactly right okay naomi i'm gonna put this on the microphones okay you might make me take it off the microphones (laughs) okay you ready no (laughs) i think our last episode of this Supreme Court, which we're not there yet. We've got other things to talk about, for sure. Other episodes, plural. But I think our last episode should be our editorial calendar, our plan for the New York Times or the Washington Post or one of these papers, basically saying, here's what your coverage should look like. You should do a story on this, 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 this. These are the questions you should be asking. These are the, like, we should just say... So people, so it's not just like this amorphous, we're saying this is bad, this is bad, this is how it should be. But we can just, someone could point to it and say, here's here's the type of thinking that should go into putting together coverage on this year's court. Or just like a guide, right? Maybe here's a some guide. Things. I yes, can, I can guide. agree to a guide. Yes, let's do a guide. Can we do a guide? Let's do it. Let's I'll make, make a that spreadsheet. The guide. It'll be a spreadsheet. Yes. Okay. Let's do it. It'll we don't accessible. have enough commitments. No, sir. And then we can talk through it and why it is. <laughs> Someone has to do it. They're not doing it. Brendan is notorious for ambitious plans. It'll be good. It'll be good. It needs to happen. We'll make something that says, that summarizes the season with all the potential fascinating articles and pieces that could be done about the Supreme Court. Yes, I can agree to that. Yes. Okay, very good. All right. But before we get to that... Like I said, we have plural episodes left. <laughs> and next episode, it looks like we will be talking about the pipeline of judges. More specifically, not just check boxes, but 
where these judges are actually coming from. Because there's just a few paths to the Supreme Court. These days. These days, absolutely. It's not the days of, oh, let's just name a senator from our party because they'll just breeze right through the Senate. Which did happen. That's how it used to be. (laughs) So... If you have any thoughts about today's episode on accountability, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at bstyle, and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week and talk about the pipeline. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.